we have properties going by negotiation or tender, but a big chunk of properties, you know, if it's a hot market, 90% of properties go to auction. So when you go to- Is this auction, like a car auction where it's like, what if yeah. I have a house is going over 400,000 and then yeah. is, is that what you're talking about? Like where yeah, these people yeah, exactly. talk fast and lift numbers and then you buy like on the spot? Yeah, 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 that's exactly it. So you put your hand up or you're there by phone or video and if you make a bid, you better be prepared to buy that house because you're unconditional. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation, Scott Peckford here. It's in the show of David Chamberlain. He's a mortgage advisor based out of Auckland, New Zealand. And this is a different episode than I typically do because I really just dive into asking David about the New Zealand mortgage market, how it works, what consumers think, some of the policies that they've implemented in their country and what the effect was. For instance, one of the things they did to slow down the housing market was to increase the minimum down payment from 10%, it's 10% in New Zealand, to 20%. Crazy idea. So we talk about that. We talk about how their loan programs work. We talk about how they have a real estate auction system, which sounds crazy. So sometimes I like to go look at other markets, what other people are doing, and then bring back some of those lessons and insights into just how I run my day to day. A couple of things that were unique. Average mortgage size is 800K, which is pretty good size mortgage. And he's told me, this was before we turned on the recorder, that his gas prices were three bucks a liter, which for American friends, that's almost like 10 bucks a gallon or something, 12 bucks a gallon, that's crazy. So anyway, check out this conversation I have with David. I find it very fascinating. We do get into some mortgage stuff as well. And also in the Ask the Expert segment, Dr. Paul Campbell about student rentals. They got a pretty cool program for student rentals if you are helping clients with that. And before we get started, I want to give a shout out to our title sponsor, Finmo. Finmo is a Canadian mortgage application document collection submission platform designed specifically for brokers. Very easy to use for consumers. It's also easy to use for brokers. It's got smart docs. It's got smart submission notes. It talks to lender spotlight so that when you have a file, you can go in and search rates and guidelines to figure out where you should place your file, go check them out at binmo.ca and check out this conversation with David. Hey, David, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. So, hey, tell me a little bit about yourself and your business. Yeah, so I grew up in New Zealand, Nelson, New Zealand to be exact. Come from a large family. I'm the youngest of seven, so five kids. Took a gap year after school. Actually, I visited your country, you know, started in Toronto, did the summer camp, worked on uh, Big White and spent some time in Vancouver as well. Oh, you worked at Big White. We ski there all the time. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Love it. I was a tubie. I was a tubie there. Oh, were you? Yeah. There's so many, like when you go up to the ski hill, there's so many people from Australia, New Zealand, and I think it's an <laughs> Australian family that owned it or something. It was. Yeah. I did notice there were quite a few Australians. No, I loved my time there. And after that, needed to come home and do some study. So majored in economics and finance uh, in Dunedin and got a job in the bank. And so then now you're a mortgage agent and mortgage advisor, I guess is the correct term. And so where did you start that? I started that five years ago. So straight out of uni, I thought getting a job in the bank was the right path. Spent a year there and realized hey, this might not be the right fit. I then left with no real idea of what to do, got introduced to Mortgage HQ and the rest of the history. So I've been here for five years. Right. Okay. And I've talked to the owner, Blandon, really wicked smart dude. And maybe I'll have him on the show at some point. But I want to make a little pivot on this because you're my first ever New Zealand mortgage broker. I said, do you broker? And now that's a derogatory term. It's like a swear <laughs> word where we are. So 
But I'd love to ask you a little bit about the New Zealand, how mortgages work there, and then we'll jump into the rest of your story just for my listeners to get a sense of like, you know, it'll help make your story more understandable if they get how your market works and how the similarities yeah. and differences. Is that okay? Yeah, that'd be interesting. Okay, so first off, you're in Auckland, New Zealand. What's the average mortgage size where you are? Average mortgage size would be around 800, 800K. Yeah. And is that because it's the main, like what would it be nationally? Because you're probably in the most expensive market. Definitely the most expensive. There's a couple of areas that would be close, but I would say the average mortgage size, five to 600,000. Yeah, but Auckland certainly is the growing market. Right. It's the New York yes. of New Zealand. If New Zealand had a New York, it would be Auckland or Vancouver, maybe for my Canadian listeners. Okay. And then, so are you guys paid like, I have some understanding of the Australian market, how that works. Are you guys paid commission up front? Is there a trailer, a trailer fee, trail fee? How does that work there? You call it a trailer fee. Trailer fee. We call it a trail and we call yeah. it a trailer. So like, a, but a trailer could also be a property that is not $800,000 anyway, <laughs> you know, a less desirable property. Let's put it that way in most cases. So there are a number of banks that will pay up front. Yeah. There's also three that will pay smaller up front with a trail. Okay. And what is more common for mortgage advisors in New Zealand? Will they typically gravitate towards the trail bank option or the upfront? I would say most brokers would go towards the upfront money now. But right. Yeah. I prefer the trail banks because, um, you know, if you earn it for a long time, you can grow that book. That's money you can count on. And yeah, it's sort of like the old days of the insurance reps would go out and sell lots of insurance and then they'd be set after 10, 15 years kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So what is the commission like for a mortgage advisor in New Zealand? What's the sort of average commission? Yeah, the upfront banks are 0.85. So you do a million dollar mortgage, you get eight, eight and a half grand. Trail banks will drop to anywhere from 0.45 to 0.6 with a trail component of 0.15 to 0.2. And then how often is the trail paid out? It's paid monthly. Yeah, so it's pretty good to rely on to bolster your uh, commission. Yeah, okay. And I asked you this because we, we were chatting before we turned the recorder, but how long before that trail bank compensation is better than the upfront? It's somewhere between the second and third year. Right. So, yeah, which is quite nice because the banks also pay cash back. Most of them have a three-year clause there. So if you're going to a trail bank, you're generally going to be making at least what you would have at the upfront bank. What do you mean they have a cashback? What's that? We call it cashback. It's uh, if you're a client, you settle a mortgage with a bank, they'll give you a cash incentive to do the business. So Oh, I see. But that goes to the client, not to you. Yeah, yeah. But it locks them into the bank. Right. Um, Nothing is free. Nothing is free, people. They're not giving you this. Oh, here's some free money. No, no, you leave. We punish you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, okay, that makes sense. How about penalties? I know that a lot of the mortgages in the US anyway, sometimes there's some cost to set them up, but then there's no cost to leave which means in a declining rate environment, there's lots of refi opportunities. In yeah. Canada, no matter which way the rates are going, there's penalties. And if the rates go really? up, yeah, even down, often there's penalties. But going up, the penalties can be like, you know, your left arm and your first child. Like, so what is it like where you guys are? <laughs> the banks work off a cost-based model. So you can be pretty sure if they're losing money, you're going to be the one paying for it. So say you fix them for 5% and the rates go to 4%, you're going to be paying a pretty big break fee on it depending on the term left but if the rates are going up and you break to fix in at a higher rate there'll be no break fees we are both here we get you both ways we <laughs> don't care no sense we, to me. <laughs> it makes no sense to me so maybe you can have your people call our people yeah you know yeah. who's the prime minister of new zealand 
Justin the other, yeah. Okay, so have him call our people and say, listen, yeah. we got to stop this madness. If people are trying to refinance and on the way up, like the banks are not losing money on this. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there are some underlying, and I know somebody's going to call me out on this, Scott, the complexity of the mortgage-backed security market, whatever, but yeah. it doesn't seem to make sense to me that if a customer is going to go from 2% to 3.5% as a lender, you should be fine. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. And then how about terms? What are the terms like? You guys have like 15 and 30 year terms like in the US or is it more like we have shorter it's, terms? It's more like you guys, yeah. So we fix anywhere from six months to five years. Max is five years. And what is more popular, fixed or variable? Always fixed. Kiwis are very conservative. So sometimes floating, but you know, my standard recommendation would be like a one year, three year split at the moment with rising rates and waiting towards the three year. And then a component of revolving credit, yeah, like a small chunk to help the clients save and pay off debt quicker. Right. So kind of like we call it a re-advanceable or a HELOC in a mortgage where you have, you know, as you pay down the mortgage balance, you create room. What loan to value can you do that though? Because in Canada, you can't do that with like, you need to put down a decent down payment, like 20% usually. Well, I've had success getting it all the way up to 90% LVR. They will restrict you in the size of it. But if you put a 10% deposit down, you can still get a revolving credit. Right. Okay, cool. So these are all things that we can't do. That's awesome. Okay. So for my listeners, if you wanted to understand how the New Zealand mortgage market works, the last point of this is it's also kind of newer, right? It hasn't been around as long as like in the US or other markets. Tell me about that. Yeah, it's definitely a newer market. So the history of it, yeah, Kiwis are really trusting. So when banks came to the market, everyone had their bank manager that they could you know, go to and just get something signed off so they could buy another house. Um, yeah. That sort of was the case for up until probably close to 2010, where the broker market started emerging a lot more. We had, you know, when I started, I think 40% of deals went through mortgage brokers. Comparing that to Australia, I think they were up at 80%. So we are getting a few more deals, you know, when the banks start tightening up, clients start going to their banks and their banks are saying no. It really opens the door for us. To get get a jump in there and solve problems. You said Kiwis are very trusting. So, hey, I got a crypto investment for you. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Guaranteed to pay out. I'm joking. If anybody's listening to this, like kidding. I'm not even into crypto. I have a little bit in there just for fun. And I mostly just watch it go down. And some of my friends have like a half a million bucks. I'm like, you're nuts. Like one of two things is going to happen. They're going to be sitting there like bank at some point. But even if you know what, good for you because you took the risk. I just yeah. couldn't sleep at night. I just yeah. couldn't do it <laughs> it's for me. It's I got a tiny bit from 2017. I haven't really touched it since. Yeah, honestly, I don't know if I can log in to even see the money I put in there. So it might be actually gone forever because <laughs> I can't remember the password. So <laughs> don't judge me. All right. So tell me about your mortgage business. So last year you said you did 65 million in mortgages. Like if you were to look at the split of that mortgage, where did it come from? Most of it's marketing. Our marketing is really, really solid. So, And this I is guess, led by Blandon? Yeah, Blandon leads that as, as well as, you know, owning the company and you know settling about 80 mil himself. He manages the marketing side. So they put out a lot of content angled towards investors. So we have like a workshop and some masterclasses, you know, advertising it on Instagram and YouTube and starting to get the TikTok, which is interesting. So yeah, a good chunk comes from them and that's definitely who I rely on for more deals. But you know, then the existing pipe and friends and family. Because that sounds like it's coming from the company. So is there a different split on those? Obviously there must be some cost like there was a different yeah, yeah, we used versus, to have a different split. Yeah. We used to have a different split for referrals, but it got to the point the marketing it does provide so much of the deals and there's a lot of time cost in splitting out referrals from marketing. So the structure we're on is just straight commission, doesn't matter where it came from. Okay, that's good for you. Okay. So can you share something that you failed at, but now looking back, there was a lesson in it for you? 
because there's always failure in business and in you know trying things. So I'm curious. Yeah, there's a lot of failure. <laughs> That's definitely how you learn. I would say every lesson I've learned has come from me stuffing up the deal somehow or another. There's too many deals I've lost to count and you always learn something from them. I would say, you know, the most painful one was a couple that I worked with for some time. They were looking at buying their second house and I created a good relationship with them and figured out the best option was for them to refinance to another bank and get the purchase with the new bank. Got all the way to where we did the recommendation. I put them in my sort of deal tracker, which is where mm-hmm. I put deals I'm pretty like 90% sure will close and they sort of ghosted me for a week I tried to get in touch they didn't come back and I knew something was up and then I get a call saying hey look our old broker got in touch and she was really upset that she was going to get called back on the commission she didn't and we've decided to go with them direct to the bank it was particularly painful I mean you put it in a deal tracker taking anything out of there is always yeah yeah. you can't spend it but it feels psychologically like and they say that, you know, loss is seven times more painful yeah. than gain. So like, you know, losing $5,000 is worse than the potential for a gain. Like yeah. it doesn't have the same yeah. psychological impact. Absolutely. Yeah. So the big takeaway from there I learned was asking more questions up front and doing a deeper dive, especially when you know there's been a broker involved. I would take far less deals from brokers than I used to, or I try harder not to take them. You know, if there's a broker involved asking tons of questions of why it didn't work. Yeah, why are you not going back there? And it's actually even no matter where you are, it's a good practice to figure out if they have a bank, like have you talked to them? What do yeah. they say? Like, don't be afraid to have that conversation because then you can figure out like, are they already approved and they just want to see if you can do a little better or they've already been declined or are they not telling you what's going on? There's a lot you can tell from the, how they answer that question. There's so much you can learn from it. So many red flags that can come out of that. You know, you can pretty much tell us someone's a rate shopper or you know, they're just using you or maybe they've got extremely unrealistic expectations and the previous broker did great. And, and you're going to be that guy in two years' time. So, right. Yeah. So they have rate shoppers in New Zealand too? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you mentioned clawback. So how long after a mortgage is closed can you guys get clawed back? Most banks will go up until 27 months. 27 uh, months. Wow. It's not like but, that here. But it will be like proportional so you had certain milestones and will back will reduce right interesting well that really does make an alignment between you and the bank and you're not trying to churn your book of business and move people every 12 months kind of thing you have to like really okay. think long term it's probably good actually you know for my lenders listing my brokers are like no in canada that does happen you know yeah yeah we try um, not to we try, we try not to but sometimes the current lender won't do it sometimes it doesn't make sense you know whatever you know you can't always guarantee it Question for you. How many lenders do you guys, I mean, Canada's massive. How many main lenders do you guys work with? Well, I would say there's, you know, five lenders that get a good chunk of the business on the mortgage broker side. There's like five or six big banks. And then on the mortgage broker side, there's five or six big lenders. And a couple of them are banks and some of them are mortgage companies. But Mm -hmm. we probably have access to 40 or 50. (laughs) Now, there's some like similarities between them you know there's some definitely some unique when you get into the alternative space or some unique stuff but in the prime space where it's all backed by mortgage default insurance which i'm sure you must have some similar thing in new zealand then those ones they're pretty like homogenous i guess they're similar because they all got to get the same insurance so like every lender still ultimately if you're buying with less than 20 percent down you got to go get this insurance and the insurance company says you need to be this tall to get on the ride there's not a lot of room for wiggle room there yeah, we have five main banks. 
And one of them is Kiwi owned, the rest are Aussie banks. But that's sort of what we call our main bank area. And they do have a lot of differences between them. They always have yeah. different calculators, different credit policy, targeting different clients. So there are differences. Like, I shouldn't say that there aren't, but there's like yeah. when you have less than 20% down, the similarities are less. When you get over 20%, yeah. absolutely. It can start to get like they treat rental yeah. different or they, you know, it's kind of interesting that way. Okay. So tell me about like, if you were starting out as a mortgage broker today, what sort of advice did you get that really helped you get your business going? There's a number of things that I can answer this with. There's a couple getting told it's okay to say no to a client. Yeah. Good one. That's a massive one. And then to add to that, I would say taking extreme ownership over your client's journey, you know, watching some of the senior brokers here deal with, you know, times where the bank's done something wrong or made an error or had a bad service and watching them take ownership over that with the client definitely taught me a lot. Right. There's a guy that ran a big mortgage company here and he used to say, it may not be my fault, but it's my problem. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that philosophy is like, you may not have caused it, but I will do what I can to fix it. And that yeah. is great. It's such yeah. a good attitude to have because even down to, you know, the client visits the bank to open accounts and it doesn't go very well. It forces you to ask what you could have done better to help that journey yeah. and improve that experience for the client. So something we talk a lot about is customer journey in terms of like what everything that happens from first contact, client for life. Is that something you guys focus on? It sounds like it. Constantly, yeah, constantly working on it. We just added a branch to a company called Wealth HQ. We found we're getting a lot of leads, but there was a good chunk of leads that weren't in a position to act right away and we couldn't do anything with them and it cost too much time and money to continuously talk to them all the time so that new branch is called wealth hq and you know they catch all of those clients the goal is to work with them to grow their deposit and get them to a position where they can buy their first time mm -hmm. pass them back to us yeah right right okay it's interesting and so what is the minimum down payment in new zealand 10 percent uh, can you so oh, we can do five here yeah, we're a little tighter. 10% is the minimum and it disappeared for like six months. We had a big change regulation-wise in the banks. The banks were forced to change their low deposit percentage of their book, which meant low deposit loans, we call low deposit anything less than 20%. They just got taken off the market from like November to March. So it's starting to come back now. Yeah. So they got rid of the 10% down. So everybody from November to March had to have 20% down. So what you're saying? Yeah. Man, there were some difficult conversations, you know, clients where I'd work with them for like nine months to get to the point where they could apply, they get approved for the loan, they've had the approval for two months, and then I have to call them and say, the bank's rescinded on their finance offer. Oof. Yeah. Punch in the gut. Yeah. How did it affect your pipeline? So like, or how did it affect the market? Because they're talking about some changes to the Canadian mortgage market, like bigger down payments on rentals and making some other kind of restrictions. But when they pulled away that 10% down, how did that affect it? Massive, massive change. So, you know, rates have some impact. I would say credit policy has the biggest impact to the market. In New Zealand, buying your own house and buying rentals is, I would say, most Kiwis, that's their only form of retirement scheme. So buying properties is massive. Whenever you can get lending for a lot of people, they get it and they go and buy a house. So when you take that credit policy away from them, especially in the first time buyer market we were on an extreme heater last year the market went up you know 20 to 40 percent depending on the area as soon as they took away the 10 percent lending let's turn around and it's dropped like 10 percent 10 to 15 percent okay okay so how much did you say it went up last year 20 percent like 20 to 40 yeah depending on the area 
It was a mess. And the government came in and said, hey, make down payments larger. Yeah. And it actually slowed the market down. Yeah, massively. Because a lot of the market is for some buyers, like you take all money. But you basically, by doing that, you just think about it, that actually the who has the small down payment, the first time buyer. You're yeah, saying, hey, yeah. first time buyers, you're sitting on the sidelines. Yeah. So I got to imagine that there was some blowback you know, it in was, the politics and the news about this, <laughs> like you just made first time buyers even harder to become a buyer. Yeah, I definitely, I've told clients in the past, I was like, I can never see that happening. And it happened. It was obviously not forever. And it was a consequence of the rules that they put in place. At the same time, they made it harder for investors to buy as well. So, I mean, consequently, I was looking for a house all during this period, went to an auction where the price got blown up by like 100k to now in the beginning of this year looking at houses and being the only one going to auction for a property and it falling through and then negotiating to really reduce the number of buyers that are in the market and it's having quite a big impact it's called triple cfa all these regulations that came out and they're looking at going back on that and trying to make it a little bit easier okay canadian policymakers, if you're listening pay attention making it harder for first-time buyers is I don't know. Like, I guess it did slow the market down. So, yeah, uh, it did lower the prices. But you touched on something there. This is fascinating to me. Maybe this will be one of these shows that's either going to be like, people are going to love them. Be like, Scott, what are you doing? I love to learn things. And so you talked about auctions. So tell me about how does real estate bought and sold? Because the way it works here is you want to sell your house. Typically, you find a real estate agent. They put it on an online system, pay them a commission. They bring a bunch of buyers come through. And there's often competing offers right now. You can get 10, 8, whatever. You pick the best offer and that's it. But how does the auction process work? And is that you how all real estate is sold? You don't have auctions in Canada? Cool. Not really, no. I mean, people have done it, but it's really, if we want to call it an auction, it's like, hey, okay, property's open, especially in the seller's market. Going to open the property on Wednesday, allow buyers to come in. Everybody writes their offer. Nobody knows what anybody else offer is at. Right. Realtor, seller, look at the offers and then they pick the one they want, send it back. But there's no like, there's not an auction. <laughs> Yeah, we have that process too. So we have properties going by negotiation or tender, but a big chunk of properties, you know, if it's a hot market, 90% of properties go to auction. So when you go to- Is this auction, like a car auction where it's like, what if yeah. I have a house that's going over 400,000? And then yeah. is, is that what you're talking about? Like where yeah, these people yeah, exactly. talk fast and lift numbers and then you buy like on the spot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly it. So you put your hand up or you're there by phone or video. And if you make a bid, you better be prepared to buy that house because you're unconditional. Oh my so, good. Okay. Okay. I got to ask some more questions about this. So <laughs> you go to an auction and you mm -hmm. say your average mortgage is 800. So that means that somebody's probably spending a million because they probably put down 20%, right? So yeah. 200,000 down that goes up. Do they get to view the property before auction yeah. day? What does that happens there? Yeah. They'll put the property on market maybe for a month. So people come in, see the house. If they like it, They'll do some due diligence on it, get a builder through, get a lawyer to check it out. The hardest thing is for a low deposit loan, you need to get a valuation on the house. So if you want to go to auction, yeah. So there's a lot of work. So there's literally, I say, how many people would go into an auction trying to buy the same house? Oh man, last year you would have found up to you know 10 plus people trying to buy the same house. So everybody's doing inspections. Yeah. Like that is a lot of work for only one person to get it's a mortgage broker to get paid one, you yeah. know, lawyer, whatever, however that works. So like interesting. It's, yeah. I mean, if you're a low deposit buyer and you're wanting to go to auction, it may cost you two grand to get there. 
just to get to so, put yeah. an offer in that you may not even get. And yeah. do you get to know everybody else's price? So is the price like, hey, eight hundred thousand, and then somebody goes eight eight ten? Yeah. Like what happens? Market yeah, that. exactly that. So the auctioneer will yell out where it's at, and you'll put your hand up if you want to bump it up, or if you want to make it specific, you can yell out a number, and that will be registered. So everyone knows the price as it's getting bid up. And when it's a hot market and you're trying to get into the market, people are paying a premium just to buy the house. Right. I think you said something that is profound that I think I've known, but never really, you said credit policy has more of an impact than rates. And I think yeah. you're absolutely right. Even policy around how you guys are doing these auctions, that's got to affect prices. Like there's this different psychology where I'm now trying to win. Like I'm sitting there with nine other people. I don't even care anymore with the house. I'm like, they're not getting this house. Like, yeah, so yeah. you're going to pay more in an auction scenario. This is good for the seller, but not necessarily good for the buyer, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's dreadful for buyers. Kiwis dread going to auction and having to compete against someone else for the house. But in a hot market, it's the best place to sell it. And, you know, that's where you do get the premiums. You get people that come in and they just don't care how much they're going to pay. They want the house. Right. Yeah. Okay. So in a more stable market where like not what we've seen the last little bit, are auctions is common or is it just negotiated prices? It's interesting because we're at the top of the market. Well, we were at the top of the market in maybe January, but people are still getting used to the idea that there are just nowhere near as many buyers as there were. So houses are still going to auction, maybe 50%, but they're falling through at auction. So if it doesn't meet a reserve price, it will fall through and it will get listed as a negotiation. So I would say but about because now so many buyers can't qualify. So yeah. falls through. So then they have a reserve price that they have in mind. Do you know the reserve price or is that only known? That's only known when the price goes past uh, the auction. Yeah. So about two thirds of auctions will fall through at the moment and go to negotiation. So it's just, is it because the seller is unrealistic in they're yeah. thinking it's still the previous market. And so they're saying, here's my reserve price. And they go, and then it's like, yeah, because I'm buying with three of my mates. We've just bought a house, but the one before this one, we loved. It was a three bedrooms upstairs, a one bedroom studio with a two bedroom rental. You could rent it out as three separate dwellings, but essentially one house. And we thought it was worth 1.5 in the current market. And the seller was like, no, nah, it's worth 1.7. So it fell through at auction. We're the only ones there. We put in an offer of 1.4 and he just didn't counter because... He was like, my counter is going to be 1.7 and I'm not selling it for less than 1.6. So it takes a long time for sellers and people in the market to get their head around the fact the market's dropped. Yeah, the sellers, they don't adjust they as quickly, to. right? Yeah. Just because yeah. the market shifts. So like, no, my neighbor sold for this and I want more than my neighbor. Man, Even so if it makes no rational sense. Yeah. What does it cost to sell at auction? So if I'm selling a house at auction, what does that cost? I actually don't know. I would say the regular or the average real estate fee I see is about 3%. Is that total? So like if there's more than one real estate agent, you pay both from that? Yeah. So there'll be an agreement between the two agents, but you know, you don't have to pay for that. The seller pays it. But yeah. so that's another difference. So here, depending on like some of them are 5%, you know, five wow. or 6%. It's regional. So real estate fees vary from region to region, but that's split between two real estate agents. So. Right. 5%, that's hectic. It's 3% until you get to, maybe they'll put a price. If they get to a certain price, you know, the commission will reduce i think there's some variation in the agreements you can see but i mainly see three percent right okay that's interesting and then what are interest rates at right now if i were to get a mortgage in new zealand what do the interest rates look like you would see um a one year at 399 
you'll see five year rates just moved up. Saw some massive jumps yesterday from you know five oh oh five or five one nine to five point eight nine for a standard five year rate. And then all those terms in between just go up from there. But right, right. I've never seen spreads this big between terms before. Right. Interesting. Well, I guess nobody knows what's going to happen. So, yeah. right, like even the guys that are pricing this out, they're like, we don't know. Is this temporary blip? Is this going to go up and then, you know, we're going to have to go back down? And so it kind of makes sense why the spread is bigger. What are gas prices like there? Has it gone crazy like it has here? It went nuts. You know, we're used to paying $2.30 for a litre. We're talking litres. Yeah, so do we. Forget okay. you Americans and your gallons and your, <laughs> you know, the rest oh, of the world man. is on the, the metric system. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're not above $3. It went to like $3.30 and then the government, they reduced their tax. So it dropped it back below $3. Yeah, yeah we're at like two bucks a liter right now, which has never been. Like we were like a buck, you know, penny, like regular buck 35 a liter kind of thing. And then just yeah. like, yeah. and so here's enough. the thing. There's this guy, Kevin O'Leary. I don't know if you ever, he's on Dragon's yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 Shark yeah. Tank. He's like, Canada the is the richest country in the world with the worst management. He's like, we literally have every resource under the sun. You know, I'm not making this political, but it is true. We have oil. We got everything. We just don't use it all. Like, we just kind of go, no, we're going to buy it from somebody else. It's like, that might make sense. I don't know. Like, it's uh, it's very interesting. He's <laughs> he, probably right. Not completely wrong on that statement. Is he the one they call Mr. Wonderful? Yeah, yeah, Mr. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's insane. What? He is entertaining. <laughs> Okay, so this has been a, like a, just a random conversation if I've ever had one. I have absolutely <laughs> loved it. So let's get back to mortgage stuff to wrap this up. So knowing what you know now, been in the mortgage business for five years, obviously the mortgage business is a little different in New Zealand versus mm. you know Canada or the US. If you were starting over again, what would you do different? I'd probably spend a lot of time focusing on my time management, which is, sounds contradictory, but you spend a lot of time at the start learning the ropes and you know getting nervous about making calls and learning the sales side of things but i feel like time management is probably the biggest difference maker from what i've seen you know our best broker he did 170 mil last year and the biggest difference between him and you know, myself and then some of the other guys is time management blocking out the time to get the admin done blocking out the right time to get the prospecting done and sticking to it it's a learned skill well, it comes naturally to some people. But. For some people, it didn't for me. So, okay, let me ask you a follow-up question to that. So what's one change or improvement you've made to your time management in the last like three to six months that's been helpful for you? Yeah, I started getting up way earlier. I'll get into the office anywhere from seven to eight. It's the quiet time. It's the time where no one expects to get a response, right? So you get that one or two hours before the banks start and before clients start expecting responses right. and you can get back to them in your own time and really start thinking through the deals and no one's there to distract you. Right. You know what? So one of the tweaks I've made to my business recently, because I'm running a couple of different businesses and time management, like so important is I used to do one day a week of podcasts. Now I do all of them in three days of the month. And so in three days, wow. I'll crush out 15 podcasts and it's awesome. Like I got to say like batching, it's kind of like somebody said, I remember Tim Ferriss, like you wouldn't wash one pair of socks. So why not batch, right? It's true. You batch, you do laundry. So batching is a great strategy for time management. It's like, can I block? And then you get in a rhythm and every time you switch between tasks, there's loss and there's a cognitive yeah. load that happens as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think if you're just trying to plod along through the day and switching between sales and admin and emails, it takes so much time to just reset and start thinking in that mode that you need to think in. Landon does it really well. There are people that I know, one of my buddies, Dustin Carlson's one of our coaches, he can do literally all of it at the same time, but he's not human. I can't do that. 
Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. Like he'll make 150 calls a day using an auto dialer. It'll be auto dialing in between. He's responding to emails and underwriting files. And then somebody picks up and he doesn't even know if it's a lead. If it's somebody from six years ago, my brain would melt. I literally be like, ah, I'd be in the corner sucking my thumb. And, you know, some people have that wiring, but the rest of us. How much does he do? I mean, uh, he did 370 mortgages last year. Holy. Yeah. That's impressive. <laughs> Dude, I'm telling you, I say it's like he's on a tightrope on a unicycle juggling chainsaws. Yeah. I'm yeah. like, any one of those things is hard. And I'm like, unicycle, chain challenging, <laughs> tightrope, throw in the chainsaws, forget about it. Like, I'm yeah, just, yeah. you know, just throw me under a bus. But I haven't heard of the, the auto dialer. Is that common? Yeah, so it is if you really want to increase your... So basically, a great program called Phone Burner is one of them. There's many of them. And so you upload all your phone numbers and it dials for you. And then if they don't answer, you can just drop a pre-recorded voicemail. And so he's just like, ding, 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 ding. So like you can dial wow. like three to four times as fast, like easily three to 400% increase. And so you can crush through calls and you can have different voicemails. You can have like, depending on, you know, hey, this is my friendly voicemail. This is my business voicemail. This is my... And you just pick which one you want to drop and then it dials the next number. And then, That's so incredible. yeah, I'll send you a link. I got an affiliate. So if you decide to join, they give me like 10 bucks or something. I can pay for my kids. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. A coffee. <laughs> so it's been awesome chat with you, man. I know we went all over the place. And if I ever come to New Zealand, I'm going to hit you up. If you ever come back Please. to Big White, hit yes. me up, right? I'd love to meet up because, you know, it's always good to know some mortgage people in other areas. So yeah. Um, When's the season start? You guys. Oh, well, it's just ending here right now. So our ski season is, I think the last ski day is maybe this Friday. And my daughter, maybe Friday or Saturday, she's thinking about going up with one of her friends. So I think it's not, almost not. done or it's done very soon if it isn't, but it's not great right now. There's lots of like, you know, you could die on a rock or something you know, in the middle yeah, of the ski. That's hole. a long season. Ours is like three months. Right. Yeah. It's just about done. So yeah. David, this has been awesome chatting with you. And if you're listening to this, hopefully you guys got a bunch of ideas about the New Zealand market and the $800,000 mortgages. And yeah, it sounds awesome. Appreciate your time, Scott. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks again for having to listen to that conversation with David. Hopefully you found it as interesting as I did. I just love talking to people in different markets and different situations to just learn some insights that I can take back to my own thinking and my own business. And if you're going to buy a place in Auckland, reach out to David. I'm sure he can help you. And in the next segment, I'll be talking to Paul Campbell about student rentals. And so if student rentals are something that you have trouble financing, Paul can give you some ideas on how to get those funded. Check this out. Hey, Paul, welcome to Ask the Experts. Hey, Scott, how's it going, man? That's fantastic. Hey, we were just doing some analysis chatting about student rentals. It's a niche that you guys have a very good foothold in, and I'm excited to chat about that today. So talk me through as somebody who's looking at buying student rentals. I know that a lot of the lenders out there don't touch them because it's like, ah, but that's something you guys do a lot of and you're very good at. So tell me about that program. Yeah, it's an exciting product that we offer. I mean, the client base that we find is twofold. And I think gone are the days of, you know, this rooming house where it's just a bunch of screaming kids and a kegger. We've kind of moved away from that and we're getting a more sophisticated investor for this particular product. And I know when I speak with our broker partners, the scenario that keeps coming up time after time is usually the parent who's looking to purchase a place for their son or daughter. And they want the place to have an extra room at least because they have that friend that they went to high school with who's gonna be joining their son or daughter at that university. And it's kind of an opportunity for them to not only purchase a property for their child, but also to kind of pick who their roommate's gonna be, right? That trust factor is there 
that, you know, while their kid is going to be away at school, that they're safe and that they're learning in a really comfortable and safe environment. Right. Yeah. So I think that's key because one of the things I know as a parent is, I mean, you can't stop who they're going to hang out with, but if they're just renting a room from some random people that you don't know, you're not the owner of the property as the owner of the property. You do have say in that, you know, if you exercise it as a parent, I would personally exercise it because I I see the difference (laughs) between my kids, you know, who they hang around with really does matter. So I think that's a great point as a parent, not only, okay, they got to live somewhere. There's rent that money is just gone and rent is expensive right now as everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so you got money that's going out the window because of rent. Instead, you get to get on the property ladder in that market and you have some choice selection over, you know, who potentially sharing that place with them. And, you know, we did the math on one that you had done. Tell me about this one recently that you guys did. And we'll just talk about some of the numbers on it. Because I think it's actually kind of, it's an interesting case study for people to just get their head wrapped around if they've got an area when they're thinking about buying one or they got a client thinking about buying one. Yeah, this was a student rental purchase that was in London. And the purchase price on this was coming in just over 600, say around 625. And for us, the sweet spot on student rentals is 75% LTV. We can push to 80 on the occasional file, but our sweet spot is 75% LTV. And the client had a mortgage of just over 454,000. And when we were looking at the rate, the rate on this came in at 414 and the fee was reasonable as well in the low threes. The actual payment on this was coming in just shy of $844. Right. And in that market, you know, you're looking at rent is from $550 to $700 a month just to put your kid there. And so you imagine you get this place, you're paying eight something a month plus your strata, but you got a room renting out for $600 a month or six to $700, and now your cost is low, which is great. But the other thing that I think is probably even more cool is the appreciation potential. So, you know, if you take a $600,000 place over five years with even just a 5% growth rate, which GTA has averaged for many, many years, it's been higher, but let's be conservative. That same property would be in five years worth 735. And so your kid goes to school, hopefully gets a good education, right? Maybe Mm -hmm. they have some fun too. You've subsidized the rent by having somebody help pay it. Five years from now, you decide that you want to get rid of that property. You know, if we're looking at a 5% appreciation, you can now help them get into the property. They're in the property market. And yeah. now if you're going to, like, you know, we have a plan to help our kids a little bit towards buying their first place because pretty much you're going to have to nowadays in any of the major markets because of the price points. So you can roll that money into a down payment or property later on. I could see why a lot of parents would actually, if you did the math on it, you'd be like, yeah, this makes a lot of sense, Right. So Yeah, yeah. It's by design. A lot of our chosen markets are in areas where there's universities. So it does make it fairly attractive for student rentals to be on the docket for us. I mean, as I mentioned, we are in Kingston, Ottawa, Kitchener, Waterloo, Cambridge, London, as well as we just rolled out in Hamilton, Burlington and Oakville. So as you can see, we're in a lot of the university towns. uh, (laughs) And if you have clients that are in that area, definitely, you know, student rentals is something that we are very interested in. Right. That's really cool. And I mean, a lot of the traditional lenders won't even touch a student rental. It's just sort of like they don't really fit. So when you buy these student rentals, do they have to be in your personal name? So could I buy it in a hold coke? I have a business or is that something that like, how does that work? No, you have the option. Again, there's so much flexibility around what you can do with Magenta. You have the option to buy it in your name if you choose, but you also have the option to buy it in a hold coke. You can put it in the company name in so doing. And again, you're at the sweet spot of 75% LTV. So that makes it really attractive as well. 
but there's no additional premium for that or anything of that nature. It's just, it's basically providing choice and providing a solution for our customer base. Right. And there's a couple of things you can get pretty complex, which is why I have a very good accountant that I used to just do <laughs> stuff. And then I would be like, can you fix this for me? And they're like, what were you doing? Like they literally, again, we love you CRA, but because I, I wouldn't check, I just be like, that should be no problem. Now I always check with a tax planner and say, how does this affect say, multiple businesses and things are tied together. But so if you're using a hold co this, I can say you wouldn't have to put that money into your personal name. If you got extra cash in a hold co you could use cash from the hold co to purchase the property now, the other thing, which there's pros to that, you don't have to pull the money out, but there's also potential to put the child on title. Of course, you're going to burn their first time buyers, but there might be some benefits to that in terms of capital mm-hmm. appreciation. So talk to your, you know, your accountant, especially if you're a business owner, figure out what's the most economical way that makes the most sense based on your planning needs. But I can already see multiple ways that I would, if I was doing this, we have a university town and I've said, you can live for free with me, but if you move somewhere else, maybe we would do this. I don't know. I haven't really thought about that. They're not there yet. But I don't know if I would use my hold co money, like how I would do it. I would really analyze it. But I think just having the option is fantastic for, you know, parents and also for the kids that have to live in them. That's the key, providing choice. Yeah, it's pretty great. And then any other things that I need to know about how this program works for student rentals? You know what? It's fairly straightforward in the sense that, um, you know, you can have multiple student rentals in a portfolio with us. We don't have a cap on how many investment properties someone can own. So, I mean, if it's something that you're interested in, maybe not as a parent, but as a investor, that's something that you could definitely reach out to us with because there's no limit in terms of how many rentals or student rentals that you could have in a portfolio. I could see too, if I was living, you know, we're kind of a university town, not like Ontario where we are, but you know, if I'm a mortgage broker and you start marketing, Hey, you know, specialized in student rentals, you could actually market that like crazy. Because yeah. again, it's one of these, you know, products that what I love about, you know, you guys, Magenta, some of these products are kind of like you've got a golf bag with clubs in it. And this is that club that is used, you know, very specific <laughs> use case. It's like, hey, it's like my, you know, 60 degree wedge. It's like the rescue clubs. Like it can get me out of anything. And so <laughs> yeah. when you think about as a mortgage broker, we have access to these different clubs, these different tools, and you just have to see when they make sense. And not every tool is going to make sense in every situation, but put them in the back of your head. So now if you're listening to this, student rentals, if I'm in the you know Ontario market, this is something I can absolutely do. There's plenty of options on this and it can make a lot of sense for the clients. So if somebody wants to reach out to you, how do they do that? They can reach out to me at, brokers at magentainvestment.ca and no S on investment. Just investment, singular. And if you guys are listening to this, check out Magenta. They are the largest MIC mortgage investment company in Ontario, I think in the country. And you guys, 400 million or something under administration. And this is just one of the unique products you guys have. So check them out and definitely think about student rentals. And well, okay, last question, I should have asked this. What do you guys pay the broker? Duh, brokers want to know. (laughs) what What do you pay brokers on these files? So we pay brokers 80 basis points. So on that fee that we charge, we wrap compensation for our brokers in that fee. So it's 80 basis points in there. And then we capitalize that fee into the mortgage. So the clients never have to pay out of pocket for any expenses. And a broker can add a fee if they choose, right? Yes, they have the option to add an additional fee if they'd like. We just ask that we try and communicate that at the time of submission in your notes to the underwriter so that we can do what we need to do on our end to facilitate the paper properly. Right. Yeah. Okay, man. Well, hey, Paul, always good chatting with you. Guys, if you're in university towns, get out there and start hustling on this. I think it's a great product. The parents will thank you in, you know, five or six years when 
they've been able to not have to rent and they can own something instead. Yeah. All right, thanks again for joining me in this conversation with David and Paul. Hopefully you picked a, a couple nuggets that you can apply to your mortgage business. If you're listening to this, a couple things I recommend. First, go to ilovemortgagebrokering.com, set up a free power search account. You can power search all of our past episodes and you can get all sorts of insights into how to run a better mortgage business. Check that out. And thanks again for being a listener. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.